0: It on billboards, on signs in people's front yards, on bumper stickers. You hear it a lot in the media. Love is love. That all love, regardless of it's between a man and a woman, a man and a man, a woman and a woman, that it's all the same, that it's the equivalent. Is that true? And what's a proper biblical response to that slogan? Welcome back to Issues Etc. It's time to answer arguments against Christianity. This one, Homosexuality is Another Form of Committed Love. Pastor Heath Curtis joins us. He's pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Warden, Illinois, and Zion Lutheran Church in Carpenter, Illinois. He's coordinator of stewardship for the Lutheran Church in Missouri Synod, and author of a chapter in our forthcoming book, Objections Overruled 3. Heath, welcome back.
1: Always good to be with you, Todd.
0: What is the rhetoric of the LGBTQ movement?
1: Well, what I find to be the most destructive part of that rhetoric is that you, I, everyone should build their identity around sexual desire. And it's so poisonous because this is the catechism of the world. Whenever we talk about this in Bible class, I often mention that the speed at which homosexuality, homosexual behavior, homosexual identity, homosexual marriage, the speed of which these things were accepted. I mean, remember, Barack Obama, in his reelection campaign, said he was against homosexual marriage. And so in less than a decade, we've gone to not only complete societal acceptance of this rhetoric, but it's more than acceptance, You are now an outlier. You are now potentially in big trouble if you don't accept this rhetoric. And what I mentioned to my Bible class is that this battle was over before we realized we were fighting. Because this battle was fought when I was young and Buffy the Vampire Slayer was on TV. And they made the lesbian character in that show the most put together, wisest, kindest. So this catechetical effort on behalf of the world to get this rhetoric into sitcoms and books and the long, once again, the long march through the institutions of leftist propaganda through the schools, up to the universities. So the first thing I want to say about this is that this effort to teach our society has been top to bottom, it's from people in power and people who control the reins of power. Again, we went from President Obama running part of his campaign platform for reelection was, I think marriages between a man and a woman. We went from that to when his vice president became president, the famous picture of the United States flag flanking the gay pride flag. That the gay pride flag was in pride of place hanging on the White House. Okay. So all that happened very quickly, so we need to acknowledge that their rhetoric is everywhere, that it's been very effective. As I was saying, I think what is most poisonous about it is that it targets vulnerable people. It targets especially young people. It's been a while since you or I went through the changes of puberty, and it's easy for adults to forget just how confusing and scary and difficult. That phase of your life is, let's say between, I don't know, between 12 and 25. So much is changing, there's so many questions and if you are hearing over and over and over again, here's a way that you can be special. Here's a way that if you're confused, have I got an answer for you? So that is what I find most poisonous and it goes with the idea that you're locked into something. You're locked into your desires. That if you have a desire for something, your identity is now that desire. I think we can see better how poisonous that is. Let's take another desire. I don't know if you've ever in your pastoral ministry ever had to help someone who really liked to steal, or if you've ever had the opportunity to talk with someone who shoplifted all the time for fun. And again, if that's not your cup of tea, if that's not something you've ever desired, you might at first just be like, well, why would anybody want to be a shoplifter? But, I mean, did you like Ocean's Eleven? You know, do you like heist movies? It's actually really fun to outsmart somebody. It's really fun to know something that people around you don't know. So it's totally a a thing. It's part of uh, the human experience. There are people who really desire to steal and it's fun. And now imagine if our society said, hey, if you've ever had that kind of desire, if I got good news for you, you are special. You should embrace that desire. That's part of who you are. You are a thief. Or you are, I suppose, a kleptomaniac, but, you know, some positive term for it. And just how poisonous that would be. So likewise, the LGBT movement rhetoric identifies, hey, here's a desire you might have. I really, really want you to think about that desire. Are you sure you don't have it? Maybe you do. And if you do, well, I have good news for you. You're very special. You get your own flag. You get your own community. You're not like these, you know, other plain Jane vanilla people who are not like you. So, as an overview of the power of the rhetoric and the catechetical nature of that rhetoric in our society, that's what I'm most concerned about it, is it encourages us to make our identity our sinful desires.
0: Why has it been embraced so widely?
1: And that's a million dollar question uh, in some sense. I, I think there's a lot of moving pieces there. As I said, propaganda works. Propaganda is a term that's charged. Again, this this is why I started with the term just catechesis, teaching. If something is taught out there in public by people in positions of influence and power, a whole lot of people are going to believe it. So kind of as an aside, this is why Christians retreating into a ghetto or leaving the public sphere is always going to be a losing move. Because if you won't even play the game, if you won't even try to catechize, if you won't even try to teach, if you don't even try to gain positions of influence and power in society, then somebody is going to catechize. Somebody is going to teach. And so that's one big piece of it. Another big piece of it is that the people who are doing this catechizing, the people who do have influence... Many of them are actively operating from a mindset of they want to attack Christianity. So it's absolutely true that this has become a bulwark of people who are very open and honest about how they don't like Christianity. They think it is a negative influence on human history, and this is a very clear area where the Bible speaks very clearly about what sexual morality is, what's good for humanity, what's good for husband and wife, what's good for human sexuality, what's good for sexual desire, and what isn't. And it's a great way to drive a wedge and fight against Christianity because sexual desire is something that almost every human being feels, and it's a very powerful emotion and feeling tied up with our desire to procreate even if those desires have been bent and have gone haywire, that the power of the desire to procreate is still mixed in with those desires. And so I'll identify those two pieces. Catechizing, propaganda, teaching, that works, and it's been done very effectively for decades. And many of the people who are driving that, it goes hand in hand with a decrease in Christianity in our country in general. So those two things together make it uh, very powerful and very widely embraced.
0: Why do we need to begin with, as you mentioned, sinful desire?
1: Yeah, the question of our desires and can they be sinful, this is something that actually goes back to a, an argument in the midst of the Reformation. This does get to a key piece of theology, even when it comes to salvation and whether or not we're saved by what Christ has done for us outside of us or whether or not we're saved by what we do on the inside. So very briefly, that little theological angle from the Reformation era, there were those at the time of the Reformation who wanted to say, well, original sin is not really, really sin. Original sin couldn't actually damn you. Original sin is maybe, it's just the, especially after you're baptized. Original sin isn't really, really sinful. It's just kind of the leftovers of sin or the technical term they used is that it was the tinder of sin, that it was the dry leaves and dry grass. It would sure be easy to, to spark a sin out of that, but it's dormant right now. And to this, the Lutheran said, "You know, give me a break, guys. The, the Bible is very clear, and we all know. All you have to read is what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount when he talks about it's not only murder that breaks the fifth commandment. Is Have you ever been angry at someone? Have you ever called them a name? It's not only outward adultery that breaks the sixth commandment. It's even the desires of your heart break the sixth commandment. Now, there is a difference, and I imagine we're gonna have to talk about this as well. What Jesus says there in Matthew 5, we don't want to argue in such a way, well, well, Jesus said, if I look at a woman lustfully, I've already committed adultery with her in my heart. So, I in for a penny, in for a pound, I guess I might as well commit adultery. Well, you've misunderstood what Jesus said. Jesus is saying that the commandments extend even to our desires. And that, of course, a desire can be sinful, because if you desire something bad isn't that desiring bad in and of itself? Again, perhaps it's clearer for us today to think about if you desire to steal a car, isn't that bad? If you desire to be angry with someone, if you desire to beat someone, isn't that desire itself, isn't a desire for something wicked, isn't that in and of itself wicked? And of course it is. The Bible is very clear on this, and that argument at the time of the Reformation I think uh, the Lutherans uh, won that very clearly in the Augsburg Confession and the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, where they point out that, yeah, original sin is not only the raw material for sin, it's everything that encompasses the, the brokenness of human nature, including the fact that we wickedly desire evil.
0: One of the things that you point out that I think is very helpful is the distinction between homosexual desire and heterosexual desire you say that heterosexual desire is not intrinsically wrong therefore it's not always wrong but homosexual desire is intrinsically wrong therefore always wrong why is that distinction so important to make in this case
1: for one thing it's a distinction that's important to make first and foremost because it's true <laughs> But beyond that, because it's expressive of why are we made male and female? It goes to the heart of of what humanity is and what God's plan for humanity is. So God made humanity to be male and female. So there's a natural, again, this is Paul's word from Romans chapter 1, there's a natural yearning between men and women. Now, in our fallen world, Uh, It's very, very easy for that desire to be corrupted. But that's the corrupting of a good thing. It's good for a man to desire his wife. So the way I worded in the essay, one way to think about it is, if we look at a desire of a man to have relations with a woman, a desire of a man to have relations with a man, both of those can be wrong. I can desire to have relations with a woman who is not my wife. But my desire to have relations with my wife, that is good. There's no situation, there's no situation according to biblical ethics, where it is going to be righteous for a man to desire relations with a man or for a woman to desire relations with a woman. That's what St. Paul is saying in Romans chapter 1. This is what he means by saying that They gave up natural desire, natural relations, and sought something that was contrary to nature. So God created human nature. He created us male and female. He created us for each other. He created us for marriage. Those are good things that can be corrupted as opposed to things that are already corrupted that have no positive godly outlet.
0: Pastor Heath Curtis is our guest. We are responding to the argument against Christianity that homosexuality is another form of committed love. When we come back, is the Bible ambiguous on homosexual desire? Issues Etc. Book of the Month for December uses detailed illustrations and rhyming text to tell the story of Jesus' birth. It's titled N is for Nativity. This new hardcover children's book is published by Concordia Publishing House, their phone number 1-800-325-3040, or learn more about N is for Nativity at issuesetc.org. Use the ABCs from Advent to Zion to teach your children and grandchildren the Christmas story with N is for Nativity. Join Lutherans for Life and Why for Life in Washington, D.C.,
2: Thursday, January 18th through Saturday, January 20th for the 2024 Why for Life Free Conference. Registration is open through December 15th. Learn more at whythenumber4life.org. Great events, speakers, and social time. The 2024 Why for Life Free Conference, January 18th through the 20th in Washington, D.C., y 4 lifeorg
0: From New York's beautiful
2: Hudson Valley, visit us at the Lutheran Church of Our Redeemer, Peekskill, New York. A small, confessional, conservative Lutheran church with traditional Lutheran
1: liturgical worship, gospel-rich, shenanigan-free. For more information, visit us at ourredeemerlcms.org.
2: Teaching your student to read should not be complicated. Memoria Press's phonics uses common sense and the classical approach with their First Start Reading program for the most effective and efficient way to teach your child how to read. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Contending for truth in an age of anti-truth. You're listening to Issues Etc. Our school is committed to authentic Lutheranism, the entire Book of Concord, and indeed to authentic Lutheranism as it has continued to be confessed and practiced through the centuries, right up into our own time.
0: Dr. Cameron McKenzie, Chairman of the Department of Historical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana.
2: We're committed then to biblical, confessional, Christianity, and Lutheranism and applying it to the world of today in as effective a way as we can.
0: You can find out more about studying for the pastoral ministry at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, at ctsfw.edu, ctsfw.edu, or call 1-800-481-2155. Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're answering the argument against Christianity that homosexuality is another form of committed love. Pastor Heath Curtis is our guest, author of a chapter in our forthcoming book, Objections Overruled 3. This new book features 10 Lutheran apologists writing about gender fluidity, racism, biblical inerrancy, abortion, the environment, evolution, and more. We'll send you Objections Overruled 3 and a new recording of 15 Christmas and Epiphany season hymns, For a year-end contribution of $250 or more, you can make a secure online gift at IssuesZTC.org. You can also donate by check, make your check payable to Issues Etc., and send it to Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Thanks for listening, and thanks for supporting the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. Pastor Curtis, is the Bible ambiguous or is it unclear on homosexual desire?
1: It is not. For a while, this was somewhat popular. I think the last books that really tried to argue this were probably written in the 1980s or 90s. That There were some people who wanted to argue, well, maybe the biblical passages, and I think we'll look at these specifically in a bit, but in the New Testament, it's Romans 1, it's 1 Corinthians 6, And they tried to make some kind of argument that, you know, these really aren't condemning what what we should think of as uh, sexual orientation today. People have given up on those arguments because they're so flimsy. Today, the people who want to argue for an LGBT perspective, they just say, well, St. Paul got that wrong. Similar things happened with women's ordination back in the 80s and 90s you would still every once in a while see a book that was printed that said hey you know the new testament doesn't really ban women from the ministry and it would kind of try to take apart the the key texts that talk about this but these days i don't know if there are any of those people left eventually people just said yeah the bible is against women in the ministry and we just think paul got that wrong and in fact many people have, have even just rejected some of paul's epistles uh, specifically the pastoral epistles First Timothy, Second Timothy, Titus, because they so clearly teach against women's ordination, they just say, "Well, maybe Paul just didn't even write those, or if Paul wrote them, Paul was just wrong." A similar bit of honesty, I think, is is the most popular opinion now about what the Bible says.
0: How do you respond to the objection that Jesus Himself never mentions homosexuality?
1: Well. Our Lord, I think, touches on the entire Decalogue in his preaching, all the Ten Commandments. Now, he doesn't deal with, I mean, Jesus also doesn't talk about embezzlement. Jesus doesn't spend any time speaking specifically against abortion or euthanasia. It's not up to us to hold God to our standard of, this is the kind of detail that we want out of the Bible. We need to listen to what he does say. And when Jesus talks about human sexuality, In Matthew chapter 19, he takes the Pharisees back to Genesis and he says, Well, you want to ask me, is it okay for somebody to get divorced? Well, you tell me, how was it in the beginning? So, this is Jesus' commentary on human sexual ethics in general. He doesn't have to say, Now I want to, you know, Matthew chapter 35, you know, Jesus is going to cover all the topics that we want him to cover very specifically. He covers the Decalogue, he covers the Sixth Commandment, he covers Genesis, and he says, what God has put together, let mankind not put asunder. And what God put together was a man and a wife in a lifelong union for their mutual support and for the procreation of children. And the rest of the Bible completely supports this vision. So that would be my first response. My second response is, again, that kind of question, we have to examine the the assumptions behind the question. The assumption behind that question is, well, maybe Jesus taught one thing and maybe his apostles taught another. Well, that's an assumption that uh, the church certainly doesn't agree with and the entire scriptures don't agree with. Uh, Jesus tells his apostles in John chapter 16, he gives them the promise of the Holy Spirit and says, uh, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. He's going to call to your mind everything I've said to you. And so it's just not Christianity to say, well, Jesus said some stuff. That's what I'm going to hold on to. Anything in the epistles, I mean, that's right out because that's just the apostles. That's not how Jesus talks about his apostles, and it's certainly not uh, historic Christianity.
0: How do you respond to the slogan, love is
1: love? The Bible equates the law and love, and like all equations, that equals sign, it works both ways. So on the one hand, we've got Jesus talking with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are leaning so heavily on the side of that equation, you know, that the law equals love. They're leaning so heavily on the law that Jesus can poke fun at them and say, you guys are ridiculous. Here you are being angry at me, for breaking the Sabbath, supposedly, by healing this guy on the Sabbath. But let me ask you, if your son fell in a cistern on Saturday, would you wait till sundown to pull him out? You know, you're being ridiculous. Love is the fulfillment of the law. But there's another side to this that has to be emphasized, and this happens in the book of 1 Corinthians. In the church in Corinth, there was a man whose father had been widowed, and he had remarried, and probably a younger woman Probably uh, this woman is, so this stepmom is pretty close in age to her stepson and they fall in love and their argument is, well, hasn't Jesus forgiven all our sins? Hasn't Jesus done away with the law? Isn't love the fulfillment of the law? We love one another. We're not hurting anybody, right? Does this sound familiar? We love one another. We're not hurting anybody. This is no skin off anybody's nose. We're getting married. What's Paul's response? His response is, well, now wait a minute. That equation goes the other way. It's so easy for us. We we will always find a way to make what we want seem good. We will always find a way to make it sound like our desires are the fulfillment of love. And so St. Paul says, well, for you, if you want to know what love is, you need to look at the law, because the law will also tell you what the shape of true love is. And the law is very clear a man's not to marry his own stepmother, not to marry his father's wife. That's right out. That's contrary to the sixth commandment. So I would say love is love is an inadequate way of thinking about ethics, and, and even even apart from Scripture. This should be something that's clear from natural law, because it's way too easy for human beings to say, whatever I desire is loving. So we, we need the law to remind us of what God's will is, because God is love. And so what he wills is true love. And since I'm bent in on myself, I'm sinful, many times I'm going to mistake my sinful desires for love.
0: Take us then to the Apostle Paul's teaching in Romans 1 regarding homosexuality. What does he say there?
1: Romans is, I think, the most fascinating book in Paul's corpus because, of course, he had never been to Rome when he wrote this. He didn't know these people, and so he's really setting down to write, systematically, an introduction to Christianity, an introduction to his theology. And it's interesting that he begins in in chapters 1 and 2 with looking at the natural law, with looking at, hey, what can just anybody know about God even apart from Scripture? So this really kicks off in 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world. So this is how he starts. L- look at the world. And then as he moves on, and now we're going to come to uh, verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So St. Paul says, hey, you know, after the flood, especially, Everybody starts off with the true religion after the flood. It's only as people began to claim to be wise that they exchanged. Humanity has, has fallen. Humanity started off knowing God, and we've fallen into paganism. And now verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves So that's clear. It couldn't be more clear. St. Paul says that homosexual not only actions but desires, he calls the passion, the desire, dishonorable, and contrary to nature, contrary to how God has created men and women to work. Now here's the most powerful thing about this passage. The most powerful thing about Romans is that it was written to Romans in around the year 55. It's written in a society that is much more like our 21st century society than it was like 19th century society. What I mean is the Romans were completely open to homosexual activity. They were completely affirming of homosexual activity, desire, and identity. All of classical antiquity, the Greeks and the Romans, were accepting of this. Demosthenes has a speech, so this is now 300 years before this, where the arguments between two gay lovers over who owns their lover, who happens to be a slave, it's a long story. If you want to read uh, Clouds by Aristophanes, very open about homosexuality, you want to read about Socrates and Alcibiades, very open about homosexuality. Another hundred years after the uh, close of the New Testament, we have Emperor Heliogabulus, who was very open about his sexual desire. Julius Caesar was uh, very open about his bisexuality. This is the world Paul was writing in. So, again, it the catechism that we've been told by the world is Christianity is backward. Christianity, it's it's old. It's, you know, people used to not understand what human sexual desire was. I get it. You know, Paul's old. He just didn't understand how these things were. It's quite the opposite. The push toward LGBTQ rhetoric is a push backwards in time. It's a push backwards to a pre-Christian morality that sees human sexuality merely as an outcome of desire and as something that's completely malleable by society and something that, uh, indeed, everyone should be encouraged to explore all forms of. Ancient Rome had what we think of as modern sexual ethics. It's Christianity that is coming against that very forcefully and giving a vision that's based on God creating humanity for a very specific purpose in a very specific way and that condemns homosexual action and desire.
0: Pastor Heath Curtis is our guest. We will explore 1 Corinthians 6 after the break. Thanks to you, Issues Etc. consistently ranks among the top podcasts in religion and spirituality with Apple Podcasts. Please help us reach more listeners in 2024 by making a year-end gift. For a year-end donation of $250 or more, we'll send you our forthcoming book, Objections Overruled 3, and a new recording of 15 hymns featuring the Lutheran Public Radio Choir. You can make a secure online contribution at issuesetc.org. Thanks for listening. And thanks for your support. When Christ came to earth, he did not come as a fully formed man. Rather, he took on flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He became a lowly embryo and thereby, in this act, made every child a gracious gift of God. No asterisks, no footnotes. To learn more about the blessing of children, pick up the December issue of The Lutheran Witness. cph.org slash witness or our website witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective,
2: your lifeline to the Lutheran worldview. You're listening to Issues, etc.
0: Husband, wife, daughter, son, grandchildren, godchildren, pastor. The kids at church. Basically, every one of your Christian loved ones is catered for at Ad Crucem. We are the place to go for all your Christmas purchases. Stock up on our amazing Christmas cards, Christmonds, Christmas ornaments, unique Christian jewelry, springly cookie molds, gifts, and much more. Visit adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial a podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues, Etc. Pastor Heath Curtis is our guest. We're answering the argument that homosexuality is just another form of committed love. Heath, what does Paul teach in 1 Corinthians 6?
1: Yeah, 1 Corinthians 6 9. Again, thank God that the people in Corinth were just as messed up as we are, because in 1 Corinthians, St. Paul, in having to deal with their problems, gives us a lot of things that we wouldn't hear about in the New Testament otherwise. St. Paul's book of 1 Corinthians is really the only book besides the Gospels that talk very specifically about the Lord's Supper. And the only reason that happens is because the folks in Corinth were making such a mess of it. Well, likewise, in Corinth, St. Paul goes farther than what he said here in Romans. If we just read what Paul says in Romans, in Romans he condemns homosexual activity and desire. And if that's all we heard from him, we might wonder, well, oh my goodness, is there any hope for people who struggle with this particular sinful desire? And so St. Paul talks about this specifically in 1 Corinthians 6, starting at verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So here St. Paul talks about this not in an abstract way. He talks about morality and ethics in a very concrete way. He talks about Well, maybe you have been involved in these sins. St. Paul says, well, I have good news. You need to be and you can be washed, sanctified, justified in the name of your Lord Jesus. You can turn away from these sins, receive forgiveness and strength to build a life that God has planned for you, a life in his image, a life growing into the good, godly version of love that's defined by God's being as expressed in his law.
0: You cite Rosaria Butterfield's experience as a former lesbian. Why do you do that?
1: I think the Mrs. Butterfield's writing in general is simply the best writing that I've read of a serious Christian who lived in the homosexual Lifestyle. And not only that, but was a very, not only an intelligent person, she's a, a thinking person, a person who metacognates, a person who thinks about her thinking. And so when she was living a homosexual lifestyle, she knew exactly what she was doing. And her writing, I can't do it justice descriptively. Anybody who's struggling with these issues from the inside, from the outside, with family members, with friends, you gotta read her books. It will be a fascinating insight into just how powerful this catechesis is in, of the world, just how powerful sexual desire is, and how difficult it is to set your sexual desire on the altar and say, "Lord, I'm, I'm giving this to you." It's an amazing story of how she came to faith, and one of the things that really sticks with me. It's in her, I think, FAQs on her website. And the question is Well, when you came to faith, did all your homosexual desire just go away, right? Are you looking for this miracle? And she says, No. When I became a Christian, my mind was converted. It took a long time and a big struggle for me to learn to hate my sinful desires. And so she's very open, she's very wise, she's very thoughtful and you have to hear about from people who've experienced it and have lived on the inside out and can't give it a high enough recommendation. What is the Bible's
0: message to those who struggle against sinful desire, including homosexual desire?
1: That message is the same one that Jesus gave to his apostles in Luke chapter 24. It's after the resurrection. He's sending them out again. He shows them every place in Moses and the prophets and the Psalms that talk about him. And then he tells his apostles, now I want you to go out and preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins. To repent means to turn away from our sin. And that means mentally. It means with our heart. It means with our actions. The whole Christian life, this is actually the first of the 95 theses. Luther says that when our Lord Jesus Christ told us to do penance, he meant for the entire Christian life to be one of repentance and receiving the forgiveness of sins. So there's no Christian who's ever going to outgrow that cycle of, oh no, here I am again, desiring what I don't want to desire, hating myself for the things I desire and for the things that I do, you now this is Romans 7, who will save me from this body of sin? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that message of repentance and the forgiveness of sins, that message of needing to let go of my sins so I have two hands to hold on to the cross of Christ with, that's the only message for any sinner Now, I'll go beyond that a little bit to say when it comes to any sin that is so tied up powerfully with our desires and so tied up powerfully with biological desires, I'm not telling anybody that this is going to be easy. And again, this is one reason why I close the essay by pointing people who want to know more to Mrs. Butterfield's books, because I think that's a very open, honest look at the difficulty of repentance when our sinful desires are trying to take us away from the Lord, and our sinful desires are so very, very powerful.
0: Pastor Heath Curtis is pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Warden, Illinois, and Zion Lutheran Church in Carpenter, Illinois. He's coordinator of stewardship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and author of a chapter in our forthcoming book, Objections Over Ruled Three. Heath, thanks. Thank you, Todd. Friday on Issues Etc. will respond to the argument that Christianity is a white religion and that racism has its roots here in America in Christian teaching. Dr. Kirk Clayton will join us, and we'll study the Advent hymn, Hark! A Thrilling Voice is Sounding with Pastor Will Whedon of The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Indeed, the entire life of the Christian is a life of repentance, seeking Christ's forgiveness for all of our sinful desires, and he freely gives it for his own sake. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening.
2: Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, offers ACT, SAT, and PSAT test prep scholarship application classes, college and career counseling, and more. Hi, this is Lori Konski, president of College Preparation Station. We have helped our students obtain more than $7 million in tuition scholarships in 12 years. Find out more at cpsprep.com. Let us help you create a vision and find your future. The College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, cpsprep.com. This is Pastor Tyler Arnold of Village Lutheran Church in Ladue, Missouri. The Saints at Village are proud to be an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. If you are in the St. Louis area, join us for the Divine Service at 8.15 or 10.45 a.m. Bible Study and Sunday School at 9.30 a.m. As we receive Christ's promise of salvation and forgiveness through word and sacrament. You can find us at VillageLutheranChurch.org. Village Lutheran in St. Louis welcomes you.